I mean, I we can. We, See you. We want to do that thing at the end. Oh, this would be a good one, I'm sure. That's why you chose it. No, I didn't. I didn't choose this. One. No. Um, like after after he dismisses, we can go back and play through. We talked about going straight into something, but I don't know where it's called. Yeah. We just. Go to the course. Hey, it's already been a good day, right? It's not even 10 o'clock. Somebody's life has been saved. We've got to enjoy it. We've got to celebrate with it. I'll tell you, if you don't accomplish anything else today, it's a good day. It's a good day. Um, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad Jim mentioned planting today. I'm, I'm glad there's people out there like Jim who know how to plant, know how to actually raise crops, raise a living thing to the point where it actually does mature. I'm, I'm not great at that, okay? Now, we've tried a garden a couple of times. Um, thankfully, we don't have to rely upon the garden for uh, what, we, what we eat and what we consume, um, because every time, every time it fails. As a matter of fact, I had a buddy stop by one time, and he looked out at the garden. He says, "What are you growing out there? Rocks?" That's, yep, that's what I got—a good crop too. When I was a kid. We uh, were going through the garage one time. You know, you know that yearly cleaning out the garage, right? And uh, and we come across some flowers that that. Well, they were dead. Uh, they, were, they were dead. They were still in the little containers, you know, the little tiny container, little cups. And they were dead. They were long past their prime. And uh, my dad, I think it was, it was either dad or mom, but I think it was dad. Dad said, well, here's what we ought to do. We ought to plant these flowers. We ought to go to the south side of the house and plant these flowers and see if they will live after we put them into some good soil. Who knows? Maybe they're not completely that far gone. And, of course, all the kids were saying, Dad, this is ridiculous. You know, these, these plants are dead. We're not going to be able to, you know, grow these things. But we go out there and we plant them anyway. And eventually, over time, some of these flowers kind of sprouted and they continued to grow and things. And so my dad, I think with a little kind of a puffed-up chest, you know, he went out and he saw the flowers, you know, teaching these valuable lessons to his children. But he named these flowers. You remember what you named these flowers? You remember? Do you guys remember? The Lazarus flowers. The Lazarus flowers. On the south side of the house, we had Lazarus flowers because they were dead. And now they're alive. Lazarus flowers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for life that, that you gave today, that you showed and you displayed through Elijah, and I thank you, Father. I thank you that, that all life comes from you. I thank you, Father, that our lives can be defined by you and ought to be. I thank you, Father, that you, as, as your son Jim said, that you are love, that you are life, 
and we can be a part of that, that we understand reality. So many folks, Father, so many of your creation don't understand truth, don't understand reality. And we get that chance to have our eyes open to what really is true. I thank you for that, and I thank you for the life that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. The pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again. The pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again. Charles Dickens wrote that. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, in you know, so many of his works, uh, that's merely one line that he wrote. Another that he wrote is this, there is nothing so strong or safe in an emergency of life than the simple truth, than the simple truth. Lazarus was dead to begin with. His spark was snuffed out. He was, for all intents and purposes, just a shell, a physical shell. Turn with me to John chapter 11. Jesus is on the move. There was a moment, there was a time in his ministry and in his life when he said, it is time for me to walk towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where everyone wants to kill Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees want to kill Jesus. A lot of the church leaders want to kill Jesus, or a lot of the, uh, the temple leaders want to kill Jesus. A lot of people want to kill Jesus. Now, he's got a lot of followers. You know, the rank and file, the followship, love Jesus. There's many people that want to hear Jesus and follow Jesus and understand what he's trying to teach. But those, I guess, in charge, if you will, want to get rid of Jesus because he's a threat to their position and a threat to their power. But there's a moment when Jesus says, I need to be on the move and I need to be heading towards Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem, he continues to minister. This isn't a day trip from where he is in, around the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem. No, he's doing uh, miracles, he's teaching, he's preaching as he's slowly making this death march to Jerusalem. Well, along the way, one of Jesus' friends becomes ill. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. As Lazarus became ill, they sent word to Jesus. They simply sent a messenger that said, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus finds out. There's no request from Jesus. If you read through it in John chapter 11, there's no request that the, that the sisters say. There's a, please come quickly, please come here, stop what you're doing, show up, heal, whatever it is. There's no request. They simply inform Jesus, hey, your friend, our brother, is ill. They expect that Jesus is going to act in accordance with his love. By the time the messenger gets to Jesus, we know from the timeline that Lazarus has already died while the messenger was on his way. Jesus takes no immediate action. In fact, he tells his disciples, they're, they're, they're north of, of this area, they're north of Jerusalem, they're north of Bethany. He tells his disciples, hey, let's stay here a little longer, a couple more days, two more days. They're about 20 miles away. Two more days, Jesus stays, and only then heads for Bethany. By the time he reaches Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, this is important. Lazarus has been dead for four days. The 
three days that Jesus was in the tomb is significant. Four days is significant in Jewish history and Jewish tradition. It was really kind of this idea that we're not totally sure somebody's completely 100% dead until we wait at least three days. If we wait three days, and again, this is through oral tradition, if we wait three days, then we can definitely declare that this person is dead, that they're not uh, going to be revived, that there's no kind of medical treatment you can use. After three days, we know that this person has died. So Jesus shows up on the fourth day. We're not just going to wait three days. We're going to show up on the fourth day. No one doubts that Lazarus is dead. It's very risky for Jesus to travel so close to Jerusalem. Bethany's only about two miles from Jerusalem. You see, Jesus is being hunted. And his disciples, as he's making his way to Bethany, his disciples remind him of this, knowing full well that their lives were in jeopardy as well. Yet Jesus knew his life was in the hands of the Father in the Father's time. He knew this. He understood this. He realized that there was a job to do. He realized that God made him for, or God God granted him this time for a purpose, granted him this time for a mission. God grants us, He makes us for a purpose in our lives. Sometimes it's very quick, sometimes it's very long, but our lives are in the hands of the Father. He knew, Jesus knew, that His life was in the hands of the Father. This is what He means when He says in John chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 9, He says this, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. That's just another way of saying, while the sun is shining, I'm here to do some work. And the sun's only going to set when the Father tells it to set. While the disciples, I don't think, fully understood this, they did go with Jesus anyway. We may not be able to applaud the disciples' wisdom or their, their knowledge, their faith when trying to understand these things, but we can certainly applaud their loyalty and their courage. Look at verse 16 of John 11. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of loyalty there. There's a lot of courage that comes with saying something like that, following Jesus. And really, that's what it means to follow Jesus anyway, to die. That doesn't mean you're going to be necessarily killed, physically killed, But this is what Jesus wants to begin with anyway. The old self to be gone. Get rid of the old self. Get rid of the self that's full of the the fallen state, that's full of the sin. Get rid of the the self that has, has, has no chance of becoming righteous in and of themselves. Die to the old self. Live in Jesus Christ. We saw that earlier today. Finally, Jesus arrives in verse 20. He shows up to Bethany four days later. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. 
She's not the only one to say this. Mary says the same thing. And it's very telling when it comes to their faith. It's very telling when it comes to how they understand the power of Jesus. Mary says the same thing. She says in verse 32, when Mary reached the place, this will be on your screen, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Again, the rest of the people say the same thing, essentially in verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? If he'd have been there, if he'd have been there, then I'd have seen the work of Jesus. If he'd have been physically present, then his power would be shown. If he'd have been standing there prior to death, then and only then we could have experienced the omnipotence of Jesus Christ. If he'd have been there. If Jesus had been present, then he could have acted, he could have fixed it, he could have prevented but now, Lazarus is dead, and it's too late. It's too late for Jesus to do anything about it. It's too late for Jesus to fix things. It's too late for Jesus to give life again. Why? Because somebody's dead. The physical self is gone. The physical self has wasted away. Or this person, we might say, is too far gone. How many times do we think that? How many times have you ever thought that about yourself? Look at my past. Look at my history. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've said. Look at the things that, that, that the, the people of this world cannot forgive me of. I'm too far gone. If Jesus just would have shown up earlier, I could have been saved. If I'd have just heard about Jesus earlier in my life, I could have been saved. Church, I... I don't know what goes on in everybody's head, and I don't know everybody's history and everybody's past, but I don't want you to ever think that you're too far gone for Jesus to save you. Don't ever think that you or someone you know or someone you love is too far gone or too far dead for Jesus to come in and raise that person spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and eternally raise that person. I don't want you to entertain lies. I don't want you to entertain worthless thoughts about you or a particular loved one that you care about and you think about. It's too far, he's too far gone for Jesus to save. While there is great faith in Martha's statement, if you'd have been here, you could have saved Lazarus, there is great faith there. But there is a finality in their hope. There is, there is a limit, they think, to the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to her in verse 23-24, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And while this statement is both true and commendable, again, there's a suggestion here of the limitation of Jesus' power. You ever been tempted to do that? I've been present when people have been tempted to do this. And I'll tell you this, I've done it as well. I've done it as well. And I'm tired of it. I'm just sick to death of it. As a matter of fact, as I was going through this message earlier this week, well, this is Sunday. So last week, as I was going through the message, 
In my time, in my prayer time, I said, you know what, Father, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to pretend as though there's a limit to your power. You see, what, what do we do? Father, comfort them. Give them peace in this time of trial. Why not ask him to heal the cancer? Huh? Is he not strong enough? Is he not big enough? Father, if it's your will, because frankly, I have no idea what's going on. Ask with authority. Ask with trust. Lay out your life to him. I've told you before, the reason we pray, one of the reasons we pray, is so that God can prepare us to receive the work he's going to do in our lives. And if we want to wimp around about it, we're not going to be prepared for the work He's going to do in our lives. Be specific about it. Be powerful about it. Be changed by your prayers and your conversations. One of the reasons Jesus says no is because our prayers are too small. And when she showed up, Martha should have said, Jesus, come over here right now and raise my brother. That's what you can do. That's what you ought to do. She wasn't telling Jesus that's what you ought to do. But what's what we ought to do when it comes to the power of Jesus Christ in our life? My prayers changed. I'll tell you, there was somebody in the church two weeks ago. And I just got tired of my prayers. Help us understand. Help him understand. Bring peace. Bring joy. Finally, I'm sitting back there in the foyer. I said, I apologize. I said, I'm sorry for all that. I said, Father, heal the cancer. Heal the cancer. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. That's plaguing people in their lives. If you were here, you could have healed them. Matthew 8, we find this. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asked him, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Shall I be there to heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve you to have, to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 10 of Matthew 8, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would and his servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus didn't have to be there. The power of Christ is not limited. The power of Christ is not limited in your life. It's not limited in the life of your friends or your family members. It's not limited in what he did, you know, the, the physically, the physical healing power. It's not limited in the emotional healing power, the spiritual healing power. There's no limits to Jesus. Now, there's often times. Oftentimes, Jesus says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, right? Says this to Paul. Paul prayed three times, said, Lord, take this thorn in my side away from me, whatever it is, something that really is bothering me. And the father said, nope, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. You have what you need. You have what I want you to have. Many times Jesus says that to us in our lives, many times. But don't think for a second that the power of Christ is limited with anything in your life. you got to pray to Him. you got to talk to Him. 
We go day after day, time after time, moment after moment, and I realize it's not everybody, but we'll go days without a conversation with the Father. I waited until 11 o'clock a couple days ago, and I just, how, how can I wait this long to have a conversation with the creator of my life? It's hard to find the time sometimes. And then Jesus gets a little bit upset. Jesus gives Martha a statement about who he is, and then he asks a question. John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus said to her, I am, Martha, I'm the resurrection. I am the one who can bring life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha answers in verse 27, Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. Now look at verse 33. Jump to verse 33. Jesus walks from her, basically a little bit closer to the tomb, and sees the, the, sees the, 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 the procession going on. He, he realizes, he's watching all of these people sort of go through the funeral. John eleven thirty three. When Jesus saw her weeping and the rest of the Jews who had come along with her also were weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus was not sad. He was angry. That's what that means. He was angry with them. He was, he was indignant with the way they were wailing over the death of someone. They were wailing in hopelessness. Basically, Jesus says, you believe that, Martha? Then why all this? Why all this? Why are you hiring? This is what they did. They hired people to come in and wail for the family over the deceased. And Jesus was kind of put on edge by that. He said, this isn't hope. What are, you, what are you doing? This is hopelessness. This is what you're showing here. There ought to be a peace that comes about in your mind and your heart. Not the absence of grief. We're allowed to grieve. Absolutely. But Jesus hates the absence of hope. Of the reality of who he is and what he is. Why? What happens when we lose control over ourselves because of our despair? We simply turn to Jesus and we say, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. You're not strong enough for this. You're not powerful enough for this. I hear you give life. You don't really give life. That's what it means to be consumed by despair. When we see the death of the physical, at least the death of the physical of those who have given their lives over to Jesus, Jesus comes along, comes upon a scene of despair, picture of hopelessness, complete loss, brokenness. When someone dies, this is oral Jewish tradition, we need to act as though the world has come to an end. He becomes troubled in spirit as Jesus gazes upon the scene, indignation. See, what they're doing is contrary to what Martha just professed. They were participating in an act that suggested that they don't believe in the resurrection or that they thought that death was the end, that death is this undefeatable enemy that not even Jesus can, can handle. And had they not been suggesting this the whole time, 
The whole time Jesus is there. If you'd been here, you could have saved him, but now he's dead and all hope is lost. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, they were grieving like the pagans who had no hope. Don't grieve like the pagans who have no hope. He's dead. Who knows what's going to happen now? Again, grief is understandable for the Christian, not despair. Not despair. 35 to 37. Finally, he, I mean, just kind of, I just see him. He's just kind of gazing on this scene. Just thinking, what are, they, what are they doing? What are they doing? And then he turns to Martha and he says, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? That's what he says in verse 35. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how they loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? We already referenced that verse. Jesus wept. You know it. You know the place this holds in Scripture, the distinction it holds, the shortest verse in Scripture. But do you know the power that it holds? You see, Jesus was not weeping over Lazarus. He wasn't crying because Lazarus is dead and gone. He's about ready to raise Lazarus to life. So why the weeping? Why being overcome in that way? Basically because he sees the death of his friend, recognizes, realizes the result of sin in this world, the despair that all of these people are showing, and he says, this is what life has come to. This is it. This is the state we are in. This is why he weeps. He weeps because this was never meant to be reality. Reality was never meant to be despair over life and death. It was never even meant to be death. It was never meant to be the crumbling and the decay of sin in our lives. It was never meant to ruin relationships. It was never meant to destroy people's lives. Life was never meant to be that. Real life, true life was meant to be fulfillment in the relationship between the created and the creator. And it can be that way again. This is what sustained even Jesus in his earthly ministry, was this relationship he had with the Father. It quite literally gave him strength and power. That's what life was meant to be. But this, this scene being played out, this was not life. This was not life. A few commentators also suggest this. Jesus is sad because he's got to use Lazarus as an example. He's sad because he has to use his friend as an example of his power. And he doesn't want to bring Lazarus from where he is back to this fallen place. Now think about that for a second. You and I weep when someone dies. Jesus weeps when he's got to bring them back. See, he knows, he understands, he realizes. Few commentators say that. I don't know. I don't know about that one. I think it's reasonable. I think it's reasonable. But Jesus has to bring him back. We see in his tears, Wearsby writes, the tragedy of sin but also the glory of heaven. Weeping for Lazarus, as well as his sisters, 
because he's calling his friend from heaven back into a wicked world where he would one day have to die again. I like the uh, poem, C.S. Lewis, Stephen sort of talking to Lazarus. Stephen is kind of regarded as this first martyr in the New Testament. But Stephen is kind of saying to Lazarus, but was I the first martyr who gave up no more than life while you, talking to Lazarus, while you, already free among the dead, your rags stripped off, your fetters shed, surrendered what all other men irrevocably keep. And when your battered ship at anchor lay, seemingly safe in the dark bay, no ripple stirs, obediently put out again a second time to sea well knowing that your death must all be died again. Finally, Jesus in verse 39 says, Take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he he has been there four days. Wait a minute, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Didn't Martha just profess her faith and her trust and her hope in Jesus? Doesn't Martha realize that Jesus has the power to save, that Jesus has the power to resurrect, that Jesus has the power to do whatever he wants to do? I mean, didn't she profess that earlier? And now the moment's upon them? Now the grave's going to be open? And she says, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Wait a minute. Let's see how deep this faith really runs. Let's see how much I really do believe what I just said, what I just professed. Church, don't do this. Don't do this. If I've seen it once, I've seen it a hundred times. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times. I've had conversations like it. People get, later on in life, they get to the eleventh hour, if you will. And they have professed the truth of Jesus Christ their whole life. And they know that it's not long before they leave the physical body, be joined with Jesus, all of a sudden, apprehension and fear begins to enter their mind and enter their head. Am I good enough? Did I do enough? Is this really the right thing? Do I have the right trust? Am I believing in the right guy? Right at the edge of the tomb, about ready to give this eternal life. And that's where the faith begins to get weak. Now, look, I'm, I'm 41. I'm not, I get it. I'm not on my deathbed. I'm, and I'm, I, and I'm, I've never been there. I'm not pretending that I know what goes through the mind, but I do know the conversations I've had. And I tell them, look, I'm tired of this. I'm sick of this. You've got to have the continue this faith. Don't give up on Jesus at the end. Don't let that fear replace your trust in Jesus that you've walked with your whole life. You're at the edge of the tomb. You're about ready to walk through the door. Don't say that this is, don't tell Jesus to just hold on a minute because I'm not real sure yet. (laughs) Don't do this. Don't be Martha here, okay? There's some wonderful things we can learn from a lot of these characters in Scripture. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But we don't want Jesus to get to the edge of our tomb and tell him to hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Let me think about this for a second. Don't fall into that trap, finally, 41 and 42, so they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe 
that you sent me. Jesus was doing this for a reason. And he never hides his motives. He wanted to show. He wanted to make a show of it. And he told him, I want to make a show of it. I wanted to make a show that he is God's anointed one. He wanted to show that he was displaying the power of the Father, the power of the Spirit through the body Jesus Christ. He wanted to show that he had the power over death. And so he point blank says, I'm doing this to show everybody so they might believe. And that's you and me too. That's not just the people standing there. Faith is trust based upon evidence. That's what faith is. And so he does this for you and he does this for me. He raises someone from the dead so that you might believe that Jesus gives life. He gives life. He has the power to grant life no matter what state it's in, church. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take the grave clothes off. He's not dead. Quit wearing your grave clothes. Quit wearing your grave clothes. Give your life to Jesus. Take your grave clothes off. Give your life to Jesus. Take the grave clothes off your heart, off your mind. Off what you think tomorrow might bring. Give your life over to Jesus. Take your grave clothes off because you're not dead anymore. You're going to live. I don't know exactly how it's done. I don't know how God's able to do all that stuff. I, 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 I don't know what it's going to look like. But I know that when you give your life over to Jesus, He says, all right, son, take your grave clothes off. Because you're going to live now. You're going to live. Take your grave clothes off. Don't walk around in your grave clothes. They're smelly. I don't like them. Church, if you've accepted Jesus, if you want to accept Jesus... Take your grave clothes off. Yeah, the physical body's going to give out. Chances are that's just the way it's going to happen. But you, who you are, not some mystical energy, who you are, what you are, continues to live. That's the power of Jesus. Don't ever think that Jesus doesn't have the power to give life. Don't ever think that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus gives us life. And Father, we, there's so much we don't understand. There's so much we can't see in our mind's eye about what you know and, 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 and how you do these things. But Father, many times throughout life, throughout history, throughout Scripture, your Son shows us. He, he gives us something that we, can, that we can tangibly wrap our minds around. And so, Father, I ask that we will trust the very things that we read. We will trust the fact that Jesus has power over life and death. Father, I ask that you will help us this day just to make the decision. You know what? I don't want to walk around in grave clothes anymore. I don't want to walk around in grave clothes. I want to know that I'm saved. Father, we acknowledge before you right now that there is not a thing we have ever done to deserve this. Not a thing we have done to earn it. And we cannot and we will not. We know it's not about who we are. It's about who you are. And you love us and you save us. Please, Father, accept, help us to accept that gift. 
Help us to be Lazarus. That when you say come out, we say okay. Okay. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing. Oh, I
nothing too big, nothing too final for Jesus not to, uh, to conquer, to fix, to repair. Now, sometimes he doesn't do it in the way we picture. You know, that happens. We don't want that. Um, big day. Congratulations to the Imes family. This is, this is wonderful. This is exciting. Um, and this, this is the point, to give your life over to Jesus. Jesus tells us, I want you to die to self. I want you to give your life over to me so that I can protect it, so that I can keep it, so that I can show you ultimately what real life really is. And these are wonderful promises that Jesus gives us. And so that's the point of baptism. It's a point of accepting Christ. It's a point of giving a life over to Christ. I mean, if Jesus said, I want you to give your life to me, but then ultimately you're going to die and perish and waste away to nothing and you have nothing to look forward to and there's, there's none of this beauty or anything. Well, I don't know if anybody would take it. I don't know if anybody would accept that. We do it because we believe in the promises of Jesus and we know that Jesus is good, that He's the definition of love, of light, of beauty, um, of fulfillment. That's what Jesus is and so we give our lives over to Him. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad that Jim talked about planting a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm glad there's people out there like Jim who know how to do this and, and do it well. Because if it was left to me, we would starve. Uh, that's pretty much how that goes. Um, we try to, we try to have, we've had a garden a couple of times, um, and I, I don't think we harvested anything from that garden. We gave a few things, you know, for the rabbits and the deer to eat, but uh, we didn't get anything from it. Matter of fact, a buddy stopped by one time after I'd got done preparing the garden, and uh, uh, Rinker, Mike Rinkert stopped by, and he says, uh, he says, John, he says, what are you growing out there, rocks? <laughs> yep, apparently, and I got a good crop, and that's what we had in our garden. Um, but when I was a kid, uh, we had some, we had some flowers. We were, we were cleaning out the garage one year, you know, the yearly cleaning out the garage that people do. And in the garage were some flowers, some old flowers still in the little, little cups, you know, the little black cups that they're sitting in. And, uh, they were dead. They were dead and gone. I mean, they were they were, they were almost dust at this point. And we see these flowers, and I'm taking them out and throwing them away. And my dad stops me. He says, well, let's try to plant those. And I said, well, well let's not, right? I mean, this isn't going to happen. The, the, the flowers are dead. There's no hope. I don't know why you want me to spend time trying to plant these flowers. Well, he didn't know either. He just said, well, let's see. Let's see what happens. And so when he says, let's see what happens, I think to myself, all right, it's an experiment you want to run, you want to plant the flowers, plant the flowers. He says, when you get done planting those flowers, you let me know. And so I went to the south side of the house and I planted the flowers. And believe it or not, I mean, if I was a betting man, I'd say they were dead. But believe it or not, over time, 
one or two or a few of them actually started to bloom, actually started to come back to, back to life, really. And uh, I was surprised by this. My dad saw them, I think, with a little kind of a puffed up chest, you know, as he's strolling by his flowers. And uh, he noticed that they were living. He says, this, he gave them a name. He said, this is what we're going to call these flowers. We're going to call them the Lazarus flowers, the Lazarus flowers, because they were dead and now they're alive. And so for a short time in our life, we had the Lazarus flowers on the south side of the house. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you, Father, that uh, today is a very, very special day uh, with Danica, with Elijah, you know, coming to understand and, and to make that decision to accept, to make the decision to accept a gift, a gift of life that Jesus gives to us. And I thank you for that. I thank you that we get to celebrate. I thank you that we get to be reminded that life comes from Jesus. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And He's everything in between, Father. I thank you for this lesson today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to John chapter 11. You know, there's a couple of quotes. Well, there's a number of quotes from Charles Dickens that I like. One of those is, the, the pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again. The pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again. Another quote from Dickens is, there is nothing so strong or safe in an emergency of life than the simple truth, the simple truth. John chapter 11, Lazarus was dead to begin with. This is where we start. Now, Jesus has been ministering. Jesus has been for, for oh, about two years Jesus has been teaching. He's been ministering. He gets to a place in His ministry around Galilee. He gets to a time. He gets to a moment when He realizes it's time to head back to Jerusalem. Time to go back to the lion's den. Everybody in Jerusalem wants to kill... Well, not everybody. A lot of people in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus. At least a lot of the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. Those associated with the temple those associated with the Sanhedrin, they all want to kill Jesus. And uh, they have a lot of influence. They're powerful people inside the Jewish community. But he realizes there's a time, there's a, a, a moment when I'm going to have to give myself over to them so that I can die for everybody in this room right here. So he makes the decision. We started last week on his death march to Jerusalem. Now, along the way, he's teaching. He's still ministering. He's still teaching people. He's still uh, performing miracles. This was not a day journey. This was a journey of time, of weeks and months, as he's going from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's not very far, uh, but he takes the time to teach as he's going along. There is a moment when he has sent a word or sent message from Mary and Martha. Their brother, Lazarus, is sick. And Lazarus is not just Mary and Martha's brother, but Lazarus and Jesus are actually pretty close. It's a friend of Jesus. Jesus had, had sort of close friends just like you and I do. And Lazarus was one of those close friends. Jesus or hears this message come from Mary and Martha from a messenger. They don't send a request to Jesus. 
Jesus is about 20 miles away. They're in a little town called Bethany, which is very, very close to Jerusalem. They live in a town called Bethany. Jesus is about 20 miles away, and they send word that Lazarus is sick, but they don't leave any type of request. They simply wanted Jesus to know that Lazarus was sick, and they trusted that Jesus would act on his love, his, his desire to be there to save the day, as it were, if nothing else, desire to be there to comfort. But by the time the messenger gets to Jesus... We don't read this, we just know this by the timeline we see in Scripture. By the time the messenger gets to Jesus, Lazarus is already dead. He's already died while the messenger was on the way. Jesus, however, takes no action. (laughs) Mary and Martha, a couple of ladies that are pretty close to you, Jesus, just told you that Lazarus is sick and you take no action. In fact, he tells his disciples... Again, they're about 20 miles away. He says, let's hang out here for another two days. We're just going to spend some time here. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to go run around. He says, we have a job to do here. We're teaching here. We're busy here. Yeah, I understand Lazarus is sick. I understand he may die. But we're going to continue here for a couple more days. By the time Jesus reaches Bethany, by the time he gets to where Lazarus is, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four days. Now, this is big. See, this is a big deal. We've we've looked at this lesson before, and I don't remember when, maybe a year ago, maybe more than that. Jesus was dead. He was buried in the tomb. Easter time, we're coming right up on that. And it was for three days. It wasn't for a week. It wasn't for a month. It wasn't for an afternoon. It was for three days. Jesus was dead and buried for three days. This was a big deal. In oral tradition, in uh, Jewish oral tradition, three days was significant because in three days, the, the Jewish people kind of uh, were able to guarantee in a certain, to a certain degree that somebody was dead. I mean, we know that somebody's dead. They're dead when they're dead. But there was this, well, there was situations in the past where there was uh, opportunity for medical treatment and things like that to help revive someone when they were not really dead. They just seemed to be dead, appeared to be dead. There's actually records of this. So through oral tradition, we get to the point where three days, hey, look, you're dead, and we know you're dead, and everybody knows you're dead. Jesus waits another day, four days. Lazarus is dead. He knows he's dead. We know he's dead. Everybody around the area knows that Lazarus is dead. Lazarus has ceased. He's only a shell, the physical shell. Jesus heads to Jerusalem. He heads to Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem. Again, this is very dangerous for him to travel that direction. He is being hunted, and his disciples remind him of this, knowing full well that their lives are in jeopardy too. Yet, Jesus knew that his life was in the hands of the Father, and his ministry was in the Father's time. Our lives are in the hands of the Father. Your life is in the hands of the Father. This is what he means when he tells his disciples in John chapter 11, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this light's world. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble. For they have no light. That's the very same thing as saying, look, I've got a job to do. And the sun hasn't set yet. 
The sun will set when the Father wants it to set. Until that time, I'm going to live as though I am in the Father's kingdom, working in the Father's kingdom. I'm going to do what the Father wants to do. While the disciples didn't fully understand this, it's interesting. They told Jesus, we're going to go with you anyway. We're going with you. Look, we cannot perhaps applaud the disciples' wisdom. We cannot always applaud the disciples' knowledge, maybe not even their faith, but I'll tell you right here, we can applaud their loyalty and their courage. Thomas says this in John chapter 11. He says, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, hey guys, let's go so that we may die with him. Finally, Jesus arrives to where Mary and Martha are, John chapter 11, 20 through 21. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the same thing. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was in Psalm, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. The rest of the people there say the very same thing, or at least they hint at the very same thing in verse 37. But some of the people said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? If he'd have been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. If You ever notice every time somebody talks to Jesus and they use the word if, Jesus is astonished. He says, if? What do you mean if? If? If Jesus wouldn't have been there, he wouldn't have died. See, here's the problem with that statement. We're leading up to the point of death. And Jesus is powerful enough to fix it, to help it, to stop it, to change it. Now, all of a sudden, we get to the point of the physical death, and in people's minds, it's too late. Jesus isn't strong enough for that. That's the problem. And this is what they were thinking. This is what Martha was thinking. This is what Mary was thinking. And this is what people in this room have thought about themselves or about people around them. They're too far gone. That sin is too great. Their past is too ugly. They're too close to death. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't have the power. Doesn't have the power to forgive. Doesn't have the power to love. Doesn't have the power to save that person. I don't care who you're thinking about, and especially if it's a loved one in your life, please do not ever think that Jesus is not strong enough to save that person. Ever. Don't set the bar so low. I was talking to Cody earlier this morning, and uh, he was helping me with the computer. And he pushed a button. And he said, I know you could have done this yourself, but here you go. And I said, no, honestly, man, I didn't even know that button did that thing. And he looks at me flabbergasted, and I said, Cody, let me just tell you something. When it comes to computers, no matter how low you want to set the bar, I can set it just a little bit lower, okay? We set the bar too low for Jesus. We set the bar too low for Jesus when it comes to healing. We set the bar too low for Jesus when it comes to forgiveness. We set the bar too low for Jesus when it comes to somebody we know. Somebody we care about. We set the bar too low for Jesus when it comes to our own past, our own history. We set the bar too low for Jesus when it comes to our prayer time. The bar is too low in our eyes, and we set it too low. But Jesus says, look, I could save even now. If Jesus had been present, he could have acted, he could have fixed, he could have prevented, but they're saying now it's too late. And look, there is great faith in Martha's statement here. There is a finality, though, in her hope. 
John eleven twenty three through 24 Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mary answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And while this statement is both true and commendable, as far as her faith goes, again, there's a suggestion of a limitation of Jesus' power. And maybe you've been tempted to do the same thing. I, I've been struggling with this a lot over the past couple of weeks. I don't know, have you done this? God, I pray for peace in his life. I, I pray that he comes to understand or comes to, under, or comes to accept. Or I pray for joy in that person's life through this hard time and through this struggle. Why don't you ask for God to, pray, to fix the cancer? Fix the cancer. You see, this is the problem. Martha said, I can believe you can do anything you want. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to do it right now. Martha said, well, I didn't believe that. I know it's going to happen later. Something hazy, something I can't define, something I can't fully understand, and I'll pray for those things. We're too weak in our prayer. I tell you, I got, uh, I got to the point where I was apologizing, apologizing to God in my prayer time. This was about two weeks ago. I'm sitting in the foyer, and I thought to myself, what are you doing, man? You're treating God as though He can't do what you want Him to do, what you're asking Him to do. I finally apologized in my prayer. I said, forget about comfort, forget about peace. God, heal the cancer. Heal the cancer. Now, look, I don't presume to give God an order, all right? But I want to be specific about what I'm doing. We've talked about this before. One of the reasons we pray, if God knows everything anyway, is to prepare us to receive the work of God that he's going to do in our lives. And if we set that bar too low, if we tell God we believe him but not really, then we're never going to be prepared for God to work in our lives, even though God wants to. He wants to show us. Now look, there's many times God says, what I have done is enough. I've given you what you need. There's many times, just like Paul, God says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. But even Paul prayed for it. He said, take this from me, change me, do something about this thorn in my side. And finally God said, no, 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 we're, we're, we're done here, let's move on. We need to have a powerful prayer. It's, a, it's, it's Martha saying, Jesus, I want, you to, I want you to raise Lazarus right now in front of me. Not just sometime in the future, and sometimes I can't see and can't fully understand. I know you can do it here now. There's incredible power that Jesus has. There's incredible power that gives life. There's incredible power over sin. There's incredible power over a fallen world. There's incredible power in Jesus Christ. And so, let's look at this statement again. If you were here, you could have healed in Matthew chapter 8. You've heard this story before. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 10, Jesus heard this, was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. And then Jesus gets a little upset with this crowd of mourners around um, Lazarus's tomb. He gives Martha a statement about who he is, and then he asks a question. John chapter 11, 25 to 26, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. 
And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha answered in verse 27, Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Now look at verse 33. Then Jesus goes from her, basically over to the crowd of mourners who were in front of the tomb. When Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He was not sad. He was indignant. He was angry. You just told me you believe in this resurrection. You told me you believe that I am life. You told me that believe, you believe that I could either raise him now or raise him later. And I come upon a scene of hopelessness. I come upon a scene of despair. This is what he's upset about. It's not sadness here. It's, well, anger. It's frustration with the group. He basically says, then why all this? Why all this? Why the hopelessness? They hire whalers. Did you know this? Not whalers like killing a whale, but wh- whalers like crying. People hire whalers for this. When someone dies, you need to come in and wail and moan. You need to come in and act as though the world's ending. These are the types of things Jesus doesn't like. He says, you are mourning like pagans who have no hope. You are filled with despair. Not grief. Grief is fine. Grief is a part of it. Grief's a part of, of the temporary loss that we feel. But despair, hopelessness, has no place in the heart, the life, the mind of the Christian. Certainly not when they die. When they die, it'd be, to be away from the body is to be at home with Jesus. Despair has no place in the Christian's life. Do not grieve like pagans who have no hope. Oh, he's dead. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Verses 35 to 37. Where have you laid him? It's almost as if you can, you can picture Jesus standing there with Martha, looking upon this scene of hopelessness and despair, kind of shaking his head, and finally he just kind of looks over at Martha. He says, all right, where, where have you laid him? Let's, let's move on from this stuff. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus wept. You know the distinction it holds in Scripture, the shortest verse. But do you know the power that it holds? Jesus was not weeping because Lazarus died. He wasn't weeping because there was this now separation between him and Lazarus. He's about ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why is he weeping? Why is he crying? He knows they're going to celebrate here in about two seconds. So why is he crying? Because, he says, or he looks upon the world and he says, this is what it has come to. This is what it has come to. This is what sin does. Sin brings death. Sin brings mourners and wailers and weeping and hopelessness. Sin brings the decay of sin in our lives and in our hearts. And he knows, he was there at the beginning, he knows, this is not how I made it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be complete fulfillment in your life with everything. It's supposed to be an incredible relationship between you and the God who named the stars. 
That's what it's supposed to be. This hopelessness, this despair, this wailing was never supposed to be a part of the human existence. This is why Jesus is upset. This is why He's crying. Because this wasn't the way He designed it. It's broken. And this is a great example of it. You know, some commentators also suggest this. Actually, quite a few commentators suggest this. One of the reasons Jesus is weeping. He's about ready to use his friend Lazarus as an example of his power. And Jesus feels sorry for him. Because he's already living eternally. Think about that. We weep when somebody dies. Jesus weeps when he's got to bring him back. That's the difference in perspective right there. That's the difference in perspective. Jesus knows. He's been there. He's seen it. He built the heavenly realms. And he knows it's time to be sad when you got to bring somebody back from there. But he did it. He did it to display, to show that he is life. Jesus is life. Completely lost my place. All right, thank you very much. We're in the Bible, right? Yes, okay. I like, I like uh, C.S. Lewis's poem here. He, he kind of pretends that he is Stephen talking to Lazarus. Stephen's kind of regarded as sort of the first martyr of the church age. Um, but C.S. Lewis writes a poem sort of being Stephen and talking to Lazarus. He says, but was I the first martyr who gave up no more than life while you already being free among the dead, your rags stripped off, your fetters shed, surrendered when, what all other men irrevocably keep. And when your battered ship at anchor lay, seemingly safe in the dark bay, no ripples stir obediently, put out a second time to sea, well knowing that your death must all be died again. This is this sadness bringing Lazarus back. Look at 39 through 40. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Don't fall into this trap, church. Don't fall into this trap. If I have had this conversation once, I've had it a hundred times. I know people in this church who have had these conversations with loved ones. We get to what we might think of as the 11th hour in our life. We, might, we get to this place where we don't know, but we think in our heads that we're on our deathbed. These last few moments of breathing this air. And it's in this moment when the tomb's about to be opened, when we tell Jesus, hold on a second, I'm not sure if I'm ready. Hold on, I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I've checked off enough boxes. We get to this place after following Jesus our whole life and get to the moment where the tomb's going to be open and then we're filled with fear. Martha says, I believe. I believe you can do this and I believe you can do that and I believe you can raise Lazarus from the dead and I believe you are alive. Jesus says, okay, open the tomb. Martha says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back up a little bit. Wait a minute. You actually want me to act upon this? Guys, don't fall into that same trap. Jesus loves, Jesus has power over life, Jesus has power over our lives. He's given you life, He's given you life eternal, and our job is to trust that, 
to live out what he wants and what he says. Jim already told us what he wants and what he says. Love God with all that you are and love people around you. His yoke is easy. His burden's light. Honor God, by the way. Honoring God, loving God, obedience comes with that. So Martha gets to this moment and says, no, we're not going to open the tomb. And Jesus reminds her, look, unless you open the tomb, you're not going to see the glory of God. 41 through 42 said, it took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit. Am I speaking or are you? Huh? What's going on? Huh? Huh? Did you want to read? I'm just, I'm just, I really am just kidding. I, I, is he? Precious thing. I love, I love, I love him. I just, I love it. Um, again, Randy, where was I? Ah, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here. They may believe that you sent me. Jesus was doing this for a reason, church, and he never hides the fact that he's doing it for a reason. He wanted to show. He wanted this to be a show. He wanted this to be a show to the people there. He wanted to show them that he is life, that he is the resurrection, that he is God's anointed one. He wanted to show the power of the Father working through him, the Holy Spirit working through him. He wanted to show that he had power over death. And so he point blank tells him, I'm doing this to show everyone so that they might believe. And it's not just the people standing in their church. It's you in this room. Faith is trust based upon evidence. That's what it always has been. It's not proof. Once there's proof, there's no need for faith. That's when our faith becomes sight. Amen. Trust based upon evidence. That's what it is. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And finally, 43 through 44, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen, his cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, he says to you, he says to me, he says to everybody who accepts the truth of Jesus Christ, take the grave clothes off. Take your grave clothes off. Quit walking around in your grave clothes. Accept the power of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the life of Christ in your life. You ought to be dancing a jig every Easter Sunday because it's just the greatest thing that ever happened to you and me and everybody else. He says, take the grave clothes off. We want to accept Jesus. We want to accept a part of Jesus. Then we want to carry around these grave clothes thinking, I'm not sure if Jesus got the power to do what he says he's going to do. Jesus says, take the grave clothes off. Why? What do grave clothes do? They bind your hands and they bind your feet. He says, take your grave clothes off and live life. Live life. Pray. Pray big. Pray boldly. Be humble. Be loving. Accept the truth of who Christ is. Guys, there is there's so much nonsense out there. There's so much nonsense in the world. There's so much false. There's so many lies. There's so many people treating truth as though it can be twisted around and mean something it never meant. Guys, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is life. Jesus is reality. And that's what this walk is about. This death march to Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you do. We thank you that Jesus loves us, Father. We thank you that we, Jesus has saved us. We thank you that Jesus is not in the tomb that he lives eternally. We thank you that we can look at these incredible examples like Lazarus and know 
that Jesus not only has the power over life, that he is life itself, the light and the life, Father. I ask, Father, here today, somebody, somebody who's thinking about the power of Jesus, that's doubting the power of Jesus, will give themselves over to this kind of love. They'll give themselves over to this trust. They'll give themselves over to the peace that you want in our lives, this peace that passes all understanding. And that we will trust Jesus with our lives, though we may lose the physical life tomorrow. So what? So what? We know that you have power over everything, and we know that you love us. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing.
be the church when you leave this place go be the church tell people about Jesus tell people about life light sometimes they're big conversations sometimes they're small conversations the word of God never comes back empty ever we're promised be the church when you leave here let's pray Father we thank you we thank you that we, we, we wait in eager anticipation for this for this season of celebration uh, coming right up we wait in eager anticipation for the return of Christ. We wait in eager anticipation to be away from the body and be with Jesus. Father, we, we, we know that life rests in you, that you have the power to create the universe, and you certainly have the power to carry us from where we are to and through to your eternal kingdom before your throne. I thank you. I thank you that we have hope. I thank you that we can have peace through all of this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, come to.